Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Coming up on Shoppers Politics. Do we want to follow Russia out of the door of an institution that we helped create? It's bonkers. It's unconservative, complete red herring that people need to stop even raising. It's, it's a not, nonsense. It is being talked about by your colleagues on the back bench. Well, they're wrong. You know. They're wrong. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, the Telegraph's Associate Editor for Politics, and this is your weekly edition of Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's Christmas and I'm sitting here in the Red Lion pub surrounded by decorations as festive celebrations get properly underway here in Westminster. And with that in mind, I've got a short festive interlude for you at the end of the podcast. Do tune in. I hope you enjoy it and do let me know what you think. Right. It's been a week when the migrant crisis has been front and centre of the conversation in Westminster just after Prime Minister Rishi Sunak finally got his act together to announce a plan to crack down on illegal migration, at least four people died in the Channel trying to cross to the UK in freezing waters. The strategy drawn up this week is very much Rishi Sunak's plan. But does it go far enough? Not all Tory MPs think so. Jonathan Gullis, a Redwall Tory MP elected in 2019, led a rebellion this week calling for Rishi Sunak to ignore the European Court of Human Rights and start putting illegal migrants on planes to Rwanda. More from him later. But first, other Tories think the answer is to improve the processes. With me now is Robert Buckland, the former Justice Secretary. Robert, welcome to Jobber's Politics. Nice to see you, Chris. Isn't it time we pulled out of the European Convention on Human Rights to sort out the migrant crisis? Why? Uh, Nobody can point to any real examples where currently the European Convention is causing us problems. A lot of talk years ago about Katz and Theresa May and privacy cases. Well, the fact is that the case that she referred to was wrong. We dealt with that. We passed domestic legislation under the Immigration Act. We dealt with a lot of that. There's one case now about Rwanda, an interim decision made by the court asking uh, the British just to hold off until they'd resolved the case that's about to be decided by the High Court next week. It's actually a procedural rule. It's actually not based on the Convention. You know, what on earth are we arguing about here? Really, we wrote the Convention. British Conservative lawyers wrote it. I think this is being put up as a massive red herring. Would everybody please actually focus on the facts? And when you look at it all, you'll realise that the judgments of Strasbourg are, are, are advisory. They're not, they're not binding. So get some, get some cojones and overrule the, the ruling. Well, look, we, we are perfectly free, and we do all the time have arguments with the European Court. I mean, in my area of sentencing, we had a big row, or big argument, rather, about whether or not serious murderers should serve all of their term in prison, whole lifetime as we call it, we won. Mm. The, the, the British courts pushed back and there was a clear ruling that everybody accepted that indeed we could pass whole life tariffs to make life So just defy the court life. The ECHR. Just defy it, defy it, say yeah, no to it. Well, not, you don't need to defy it. What you need is a dialogue. You need to talk in an informed way about why, why it is in the UK we've got certain uh, ways of doing things that work really well, entirely consistent with all the principles that everybody in the Council of Europe signed up to. Look, Chris, do we want to be Russia? 
Do we want to follow Russia out of the door of an institution that we helped create? It's bonkers. It's unconservative and it needs to be nailed. Well, this not- is a complete red herring that people need to stop even raising. It's, it's a not, nonsense. It is being talked about by your colleagues on the back bench. Well, they're wrong. You know. They're wrong. But, but, but look, when I push them as to the detail, I don't get anything. That there's no substance to this. It's just a general creed occur about how awful everything is. And defenders is. of ECHR would say it looks after old people's rights in a, in a, in a, in a no, care home. Their human rights it, are looked after by that legislation. It's a backstop, right? It's a backstop. We've got loads of domestic legislation. You know, very rarely do we actually need to have recourse to the arguments under the European Convention of Human Rights. In criminal law, you know, we very seldom need them because we've got so many protections built into the criminal law as, as you know, in accordance with our great English and Welsh and Scottish common law tradition, um, I really don't see what the argument is. The trouble is, it's got the word Europe in it. And for some of my colleagues, it's like catnip. You know, we've done, we're doing Brexit. You know, the big decision was made by the British people. We've respected that. We've got to get on with making sure that all the potential benefits of that are uh, it made its head back in 2017, which was amazing, didn't it, this idea? Look, I, I really don't see what the argument is about. I think everybody needs to just look at the facts, pull back from all this sort of, you know, talk, and actually concentrate so, on what we can do domestically, which is a lot. Do you agree with the policy on Rwanda, on sending no, migrants I, to Rwanda, I, flying them? I, I doubt its efficacy. I think it's right that the British government, like like the Danish government and many other governments, have looked at different options, including working with other countries across the world to see how we can, you know, manage this problem. And it is a problem for countries across the West. There's no doubt about it. You know, the the, the scandal of small boats and the illegal profiteering that we see is is just appalling. But, you know, at the end of the day, is it going to work is the, is the real question for me. Um, and it's a difficult one. It's expensive. It involves involve, you know, getting carriers to take, uh, you know, the flights across. As carriers have been pulling out of all of this. You know, I, I want to see something practical work. I think it's right that the government absolutely pushed this and looked at it. But it may well be that the sort of solution actually lies with what the Prime Minister announced this week, which is a direct deal, a bilateral arrangement with countries of particular problems. So Albania, big problem at the moment. They form the mass of uh, illegal migrants. Mm. There are a thousand or more of them in our prisons. Yeah, doing a deal with the Albanians makes eminent sense. It's a sort of practical solution. It's a bilateral deal. Bilateral. Outside the EU, you can do these deals. Bilateral deal. But you know, look, I mean, uh, Sweden. I mean, Sweden's doing quite a lot in this area at the moment. They're in the EU. They're in the convention. Yeah, you know, again, I just I think that coming out of the EU has meant that we've able to able to end free movement, and that's been a benefit in the sense that we can now say to you know people with previous convictions, look, you're not welcome here. It was more difficult under free movement to do that, and I can see that as a real benefit for us. But but you know make no bones about this. This is prosaic stuff. There's no magic poetry that's going to solve the problem. We've got to look at each source country, do a bilateral deal with them wherever possible, and therefore manage the problem. And I think Albania is, is, see, is the classic Are you not being a spokesman for the legal system that isn't working? You are a senior lawyer, you're a KC, you're a former Attorney General, Justice Secretary. Are you not supporting a system that isn't working in terms of helping the government control migration? Uh, well, look, I, th- I think the system isn't working, the actual you know, processing system, because of inefficiencies within the Home Office, frankly. You know, when I was uh, 
Lord Chancellor, I was very keen to clear the backlog of immigration cases during COVID. You know, we weren't having people coming in. I thought, great opportunity. Let's crack on. Uh, you know, it was like wading through treacle. Mm. I was deeply frustrated not to see a, a reduction in the backlog then. Great to 100, hear... 100,000 now or so. Yeah, but it's, I mean, look, it's great to hear more resources being put in, more caseworkers... I also called for something called the detained fast-track procedure to come back. It was suspended. This was a procedure that could deal with people in detention very quickly, get them through the system, through the tribunals, fast-track the process, make it fair. There were question marks about whether it was as fair as it could have been. It was suspended back in 15. We need to bring it back. We need to make sure that with the safeguards, we the can frustration use that lawyers that fast-track. The lawyers a bit have the whip hand now against over the politicians who want to do, do the, the right thing for the country. Do you see that? <sighs> Look, it's like sailors complaining about the sea. We are all subject to the law. We pass laws in Parliament. It's our job to pass laws that work. And very often, you know what happens, Chris? The courts end up clearing up the mess that's caused by incoherent and badly drafted legislation. I mean, the immigration rules, which govern the whole way in which the tests are applied, in which you know the, the officials look at this, are, are the most labyrinthine and complicated set of rules and regulations I think any of us have ever seen. You know, I, I think they need codifying. I think they need simplifying. Uh, if, if we really did our job properly in Parliament, I think we would reduce a lot of the uh, need for uh, courts to clear up ambiguity. That's when things go wrong. I don't think the answer is to say, well, do you know what? We're not interested in the rule of law anymore. You know, these pesky courts are getting in the way. I'm afraid sometimes you do need that to check and balance what are, I'm afraid, inadequacies elsewhere in the system. And you want to relax the rules on allowing asylum seekers who are here to work? Well, look, at the moment, after 12 months, some asylum seekers can work in certain occupations that we, we have identified a shortage in. Because of these backlogs, I see people you know, in hotels doing nothing, actually going on the black market and working for half the minimum wage. Because they want wage. to work. Yeah, but they're ending up working anywhere on building sites and in restaurants. Right? We're tolerating this organised hypocrisy. I'd much rather see us be honest about it, recognise the fact that these people could actually make a contribution and pay their way, whilst not accruing rights, by the way. Mm. It's not about accruing rights so that they can then say, well, I've been working, therefore yeah. I can stay, but to actually get them to contribute while they're here, rather than us shelling out all these billions mm. on free accommodation and other costs that are incurred, it just seems to me to be common sense. You're not a fan of um, Dominic Ralph's Bill of Rights, are you? Well, I don't see what it does. It, do, it seems to me to be totally ineffectual. Uh, There's some reform to the Human Rights Act was, was something I was passionately committed to. I helped write the manifesto to say we were going to reform it and update it. Um, I'd started that work. I was very surprised to see the Bill of Rights emerge. I don't see what relation that had to what we'd said to the British people in 2019. It's a massive bill in terms of scope. My real worry is the sort of nutty ideas that Gordon Brown came up with last week about rights to work, rights to benefits, you know, all these sort of socio-economic rights will be tagged on to this bill by some wiseacres on the Labour benches and we'll have arguments about you know, rights to abortion. So it's a Trojan horse to... It's a massive Trojan horse, Chris. My advice to the Prime Minister and the government is, you know, ditch it. We've got plenty of other priorities. I'm encouraged to hear Number 10 putting a priority on legislation to deal with small boats. I think that's far more important. Let's actually do something tangible on that and then come back with some really, you know, uh, carefully calibrated reforms to the Human Rights Act that actually deliver some some meaningful change. You're a good friend of Love Liz Trust. Are you in touch with her? 
I've spoken to Liz very briefly. Uh, she's been back in Parliament a couple of times. We're going to meet up in, in the new year. Uh, she's been through quite a year, as, as we all have. I'm sure she will uh, come back. She's a pretty irrepressible sort of character. And although it's been, you know, uh, quite a, uh, uh, an experience for her, yes. uh, I'm sure she'll have all. some contribution to make. What should Liz Trust do next, do you think? Oh, my goodness me. Look, I, I think Liz is a person who's very motivated by ideas. Yes. And I don't always agree with her. Her lodestar is free market liberalism. Yeah. And it's not gone away, that Freedom idea. and free enterprise. Well, it shouldn't go away. I mean, look, I, I, I'm, I, I'm moved by different gods. My Toryism is based upon belief in meaningful tradition, uh, order, uh, rule of law, uh, equality under the law opportunity and where the free market comes in you know that could be a great handmaiden to what we want to achieve now i think she's much more from the liberal tradition it meant you know sometimes we'd have some lively debate <laughs> but i respect Liz has that hugely. gone away now though after the, the Look, chaos I, and the I, I, absolute I, nightmare of the um, of that autumn statement i, I, I hope 23rd. not because the s- substance of that growth plan was extremely good. There was some great, what we call, you know, this awful phrase, supply-side reform. I used to hate that phrase. What it means is removing obstacles for businesses mm. to grow. You know, particularly micro-businesses that might have a turnover of under mil- a million, wanting to grow, n- not easy to get through those it's barriers. It's a lack of warnings of workings there. I- exactly. Now, the that, 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 that growth plan was all about that sort of aspiration, and I liked that. What went wrong was was the was that, that that haste was confused with speed. That is then that what triggered the, the reaction in the markets, the guilt spike. Um, I mean, it's interesting to see the pound. You know, is back about one twenty four, twenty four, one twenty five. You know, it, 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 it's it, we have been able to to move on from that phase, but there's no doubt that it did a lot of damage. I think to the. The, the you know the cause if you like mm, yeah. of of that approach to politics and that will take some time to recover and, and yourself you're you've been around Tory politics for thirty years you've been yeah. campaigning for fruitless seats you got in at your th- fourth attempt a third or fourth attempt from memory <laughs> do you want a way back in have you got your knighthood you're you're a ah, you're a KC you can be wow. you can work out I remember saying to Boris Johnson that that knighthood was not to be regarded as the equivalent of a carriage clock okay fine. Uh, and indeed I did come back into government all briefly look I've still got a lot to give I'm going to be working very hard on economic inactivity uh, issues particularly on neurodiversity and the barriers to employment that people with those conditions have and I'll be working on that with the government I think there's lots of practical measures that business can take and we can help reduce that that large number of people who want to work but can't for very very good reason well good luck with all that and you mentioned Boris Johnson there should he come back I come back as prime minister leader is it all over Oh, look. Uh, uh, Second coming? <laughs> look, yeah, I've learned with Boris, and I've known him for most of my political life. Uh, you can never rule anything out with, with Boris Johnson. I think, it, uh, I think it's unlikely. I think that the confluence of events in 2019 meant that his uh, uh, election as Prime Minister was absolutely perfectly timed. I thought, you know, his sort of you know, interest in potentially standing last time was not well-timed. It wasn't the moment. I, I can't foresee a moment where it would be a, a, a chance for him to come back. I think, you know, we've had more than enough psychodrama in the last year. Let's just get on and do the job of government, <laughs> which I have to say, Prime Minister's doing rather well at. Well, we'll hear more from him in the new year about what actually he wants to do as Prime Minister. Robert Buckland, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Chris. 
Robert Buckland, thank you. Now, as I said earlier, this week, Redwall Tory MP Jonathan Gullis led a rebellion of 70 Tory MPs, including Boris Johnson and Priti Patel, urging the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, to ignore the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, and start putting migrants on flights to Rwanda. The idea is to dissuade people coming across from France to the UK by showing them it's not worth it. If they come, they're off to Africa. With me now is Jonathan Gullis. Jonathan, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Well, good to be with you, my friend. How are you doing? Really good. Well, welcome to the Red Lion Pub. You're familiar with this uh, this establishment, I'm sure. Oh, well, yeah, especially because I'm just based in Richmond House, so I have to regularly walk part in and out in and out <laughs> by it when I'm coming to and from work. Now, now you're you're known um, by Labour MPs as one of the real brayers. You do bray, don't you, at the, at the uh, and shout at them uh, from your position, I, I, uh, just I, along from the gangway. Very excitable is how I like comments. to see it as. Yeah, my, I must say, though, my mum's obviously not always impressed with my uh, behaviour. She once moaned at me as well for like being on my phone too much, but what I found quite ironic it was the only reason I was looking at my phone is because she, she was texting me so I did point out to her but yeah no I what do you shout then we can't really hear it so I just uh I just make the odd thing normally it's sack the joke maker I don't think uh Sakir's got is, is the best deliverer the I think and actually I must say this to Sakir to be fair to him I think it's become actually it's a bit of a private loving he looks for it so the other day he saw me and Lee Anderson sat next to each other and he, he was making a gesture that I see you, I see you. Oh, really? So then the following week I sat down and as soon as he sat down I started, gave him a little wave and a smile and he started cracking up. So <laughs> it's always good natured. It's always good natured. Don't get you, you, personal. You're, yeah, you're opponents but not enemies. That's the point. Exactly. And people don't understand that outside of politics. It's a battle of ideas, isn't it? Well, let me you're... give you an example. Like In the middle of Portcullis House, uh, Keir was walking by, I stopped him and said, I've got a friend back in Stoke who wants to one day be a Labour councillor. I saw you MP. talking yesterday. Yeah, I saw I was and there. He, uh, and said, could I get her in touch with because she was a bit unsure whether or not it was for her and he kindly had his, his office immediately emailed mine and I put them in touch because you know shock horror despite what the social media image of me is uh, you know my, my partner's an ex-Labour Party member her auntie was the president of the PCS union for a number of years her uncle is uh, a member of the uh, well Socialist Workers Party he was kicked out of Labour for being part of militant my stepfather was on the um uh, March in October 2019 campaigning for the overturning of the Brexit referendum he's half Scottish half German you can probably understand why so, <laughs> so it doesn't run deep in your party so you're, I don't I don't live in some echo chamber I'm lucky to find anyone around the dinner table that agrees with me <laughs> let alone you know outside the real world so I think what probably upsets me a bit is I think that some of my opposition MPs have bought into the social media narrative of me and actually, the ones I've got to know, uh, so Alex Davis-Jones, David Linden, um, Stephen Flynn even, like uh, uh, Owen uh, Thompson, uh, those last three from the SNP, on the Labour benches are really like Kate Green, really like Bambos. Bambos, Cherry Cherry Ambers. Yeah, Great sorry, man. yeah. Great so, I, you know, I think these are all really good people. I just uh, hope that maybe opposition MPs don't be scared to come up and have a cup of tea with me in the tea room. I'll have I'll have a I'll have good chat and it's always good natured and like I say, yeah we're opponents and yes I'm going to put my argument about why I believe what the Conservative Party is doing is well, right. Well, let's start with your your criticism there of the of 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 the party and where it's going wrong maybe at the moment with immigration. Now you think that you put down a motion, didn't you, in Parliament that was never going to win the day? But but what what did that motion say this week? So the motion simply said that we should ignore the European Court of Human Rights ruling on the very specific element of the ro- which was offshoring to go to Rwanda. So get, get the planes taking off, which and, Oswald Braveman wants. And my basis for that was David Davis, with Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister back in 2010-11, put down, obviously, a bill to say that 
Parliament is sovereign and we should ignore the European Court of Human Rights ruling to say that prisoners should have the right to vote. And all I was saying was, the precedent's there, the Deputy Prime Minister knows this. I'm not saying let's just ignore the ECHR blanketly. I'm saying on this one specific element of the Nationality and Borders Act, offshoring, we as a parliament are sovereign. We took back control of our laws and our borders after in 2019, following the largest ever political mandate uh, given. And in my area, Chop, as you know, 73% voted to leave the European Union in Stoke-on-Trent, North Kidsgrove and Talk. So that's all I was trying to do. And it was to actually give another weapon in Rishi Sunak's arsenal to be able to, to use when it comes to doing all he can to solve it. I forgot that you're being supportive, aren't you? That's, yeah, what, no. that's what all the rebels say. Uh, well, look, I, look, I thought what Rishi announced the day before went much further than I think most of us thought it would do. I am one of those that will say, quite frankly, the devil's in the detail here. I will be perfectly honest. I'm all up for getting uh, processing done quicker. But when the Home Office is telling me 7 in 10 maybe even 8 in 10 an hour being approved, 44,000, if we have seven out of uh, 70% to 80% of 44,000 approved, the British public is going to go mental. Mm. When we found out that, you know, we're only reject, we're accepting about 45% of Albanians, so that 12,000 won't see 12,000 people return. So there's a political price still to pay if we don't actually make sure and, that and, we yep. rubber stamp these things quicker. And you talk about a political price, but some people would say, what about the human, the human cost of this? I mean... The stories from the channel this week have been horrific. Uh, the loss of life there is dreadful. I mean, is this the answer? I think we have to. I think Rishi Sunak is correct that we have to stop boats. If we don't stop boats coming over, that is human life at risk in those dangerous waters, ice cold, dangerous waters. And all I want to do is to make sure that people are choosing not to put money into the hand of smuggling gangs and not choosing to get into boats because there are alternative ways to come to this country that can still give them the refuge if they need it but without having to risk their lives in the way that they are doing at present and it's so you want to stop the risk taking i want to stop the risk taking and i also want to smash apart the smuggling gangs model because what they're doing is vile they're trading in human misery and if if we're ever going to break what's going on right now we have to break the operational model which is reliant on the fact that people can successfully Mm. make that journey across once we can show even if you get across you're immediately going to be deported or offshore to rwanda then where's the where's the incentive? And you had, you had 70 Tory MPs, including the former Home Secretary Priti Patel, supporting su- supporting your um, asylum seekers brackets removal to safe countries bill. I suppose that that's a good number there to take forward, isn't it? If you want to try and force another vote, a rebellion, but the Labour won't support it. But you're trying to give um, Sunak maybe some space to go further than he has done so far. I think I'm, we're just trying to give him space. And I think at the end of the day, look, we had the backing of Boris Johnson, albeit he couldn't be there to vote, but he did. Where was he again? He had a, he had a prearranged uh, personal event that he told me was at, but I didn't delve into the details. Not of the holiday. But obviously, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Priti Patel, Nadine Dorries, all signing up to this. And we're simply just trying to, you know, take the, the cuts and the bumps as, it, as you go through these battles for the Prime Minister to make sure that he's got, as I say, the space to go harder, go further. You know, this legislation that he's promising the new year sounds quite bold. You know, if he's going to really push ahead with saying, if you come to this country illegally, you know, you can't claim a sign, which, by the way, fully supportive of, but... It's going to need some thick skin because that's going to be a tough gig to get through the House of Commons and even with some of my own colleagues. So I'm here to have his back on that one. But I'm also here to say to him, don't be afraid to go as far as you think you need to in order to get this job done. Because if you don't, 
Yeah. Me and him won't be in government, mate. Reform's going to do the harm to me, and they'll make sure you worry about reform. In. I mean, you, 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 you won your seat in 2019 from a Labour MP, Ruth Smith. Your majority is six over six thousand. Is a good? Is that is that a risk? You think in 2024 election? Oh, right now, I think we're in a very perilous situation. You've got those people who went directly from Labour to Conservative in 2019, saying. Obviously, the last particularly three, four months have just looked such a sideshow that they're not impressed and they want someone who's competent. Part of that is also Corbyn's now gone so they can feel they can return. You've got those who went on the journey via Brexit Party UKIP to us from Labour. They will they feel with immigration as they're seeing it now that they've been betrayed. So in someone like Stoke that's been for 30 years, I think it is now, a member of the Voluntary Asylum Dispersal Scheme where we had 800 people before hotels got used. We've now got 1,200 people. And then Conservative voters, when they see, you know, taxes going up, when they see money being uh, given out to people who need it, they get that. But they also feel that those middle income earners, those who earn twenty five to sixty five thousand, those people who are middle England, it always feels like it's being squeezed hardest by any government. They're obviously going, where's the motivation for me to come out to vote? So I will say Rishi's brought calmness. That's one box ticked. Um, he's narrowed down he's really understood the challenge of small boats i will give him credit he's regularly in touch with me telling me you know what he's trying to do he's shown me that he's been across the detail so respect for that because it's the it's the most i've heard from anyone in that level of detail but of course we're going to be judged on delivery and if you don't deliver then yeah if i go in stoke-on-trent north with my majority it's probably about another 60 to 70 seats that will also then go that means we're in opposition and not just opposition to a minority labor government opposition to a labor majority government and that that terrifies me, Choppers, I'll be perfectly frank with you. You mentioned there about Richard Sunak and, and the leader. Do you, have you confident that he has got what it takes to lead you at the next election, or do you want Boris Johnson back? I believe Rishi can do the job. I think he's got... Uh, what's interesting is, with my voters, they don't really know him like they do know Boris. And Boris is a once-in-a-generational type individual, massive personality, you know, can connect with voters in ways that others can't. You know, I'm sure Keir Starmer was delighted when Boris Johnson went because I think in the Red Wall in particular, Boris Johnson posed a real threat. But Rishi delivered Stoke-on-Trent, £56 million for the levelling up fund. He delivered the furlough scheme. Lots of those small businesses on my high streets or in my local area kept going through business interruption loans, etc. So they know that this is a guy that has stepped up but to the But how big will the crowd be on a wet night in Stoke? compared to Boris Johnson, but it won't be the same. Oh, it won't be the same, but I don't think anyone, to be fair. But I do think Rishi can pull a crowd much bigger than the Keir Starmer, because believe me, when people are telling me that they're going to vote Labour, it's reluctantly, it's a very soft underbelly, this Labour surge in the polls. It is a, because I've got no other choice. If we can show we're competent, if we can show we deliver, and if Rishi gets the space and the time to introduce himself to the electorate, I think they'll like the alternative. And the polls are already showing that, right? And when will that happen? In, in the new year? Yeah, I think in the new year. I mean, I've always said the spring statement, I think, is a massive opportunity for Rishi to outline the positive vision. Look, we've had to go through the hard times. He's had to give the bad news. But... The spring statement's an opportunity to lay out what growth means to Rishi Sunak, what levelling up means. You can jump on every opinion poll you want right now. The only poll that matters is the one in polling day. And we're not having one tomorrow. We're not having one in a month. We're having one in two years' time. And as I say, that means Rishi Sunak's got time to turn the economy around and inflation, albeit small, and grip is starting to come down. And the grip of immigration and numbers again starting to come down and flights taking off, even just to Albania on its own, on those particular flights. Suddenly, we're in a very different ball game. And let's just remember this. In places like Stoke-on-Trent, this red wall that I'm proud to be a member of, they had 70 years of labour. 
and Labour did nothing. These voters went Conservative, not just because of Boris Johnson, not just because of Brexit, not just because of anti-Corbyn, but because it was time to try something else and see if that worked. Well, Jonathan Gallagher's on your way back to the Red Wall in Stoke-on-Trent. Thank you for joining us this week on Charles Politics Podcast. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, mate. You take care. Have a good Christmas. Thank you. Jonathan Gullis there. Now, coming up, I'll be talking about the so-called silver exodus from the workforce with Shadow Working Pension Secretary Jonathan Ashworth right after this. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Now, the Tories are not the only party worried about why so many over 50s are dropping out of the workforce. We heard plenty of that from Jeremy Hunt in his autumn statement last month. Labour is too, and it's got its own ideas on how to combat it. Jonathan Ashworth, Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. You're the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. What would Labour do to stop people leaving the workforce over 50? Well, first of all, it's great to be here and thank you for having me on. Um, and I'm really pleased that you're focusing on this topic today because this is my big preoccupation in, in my job as the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. Fundamentally, I believe we've got to get Britain working again. We've got over a million vacancies in the economy. We've got two and a half million people who are out of work for reasons of sickness. That's the highest rate for 20 years. It's going to be costing us £8 billion extra in in benefits bill. And we've also seen this great silver exodus, if you like, of what nearly half a million over 50s having left the labour market since the pandemic. And the UK is the only country in the G7 not to have recovered its pre-pandemic employment rate. Now, if we want to grow the economy, if we want to make the economy more productive, if we want to spread prosperity, we've got to get more people back into work. And yet we seem to have this problem in the UK that more and more people are designated as economically inactive. They're not looking for work and they're not in work. And a big chunk of that is the over 50s. So I'm looking at how do we solve this issue? Now, for some of those people, some of your listeners and and readers of the newspaper, they probably take an early retirement. They might have a bit of equity in their home. The lucky few. Yeah, they've got a bit of equity in their home. They can access a bit of their pension. But there's also, according to the different studies, probably around a million people, older workers, who would return to work with the right help and the right support. But we're not offering them the right help and the right support. So I want to reform the system to give them the right help and support. And hopefully we can get into the details of some of that this morning. And what would that be? So Because um, Jeremy Hunt identified it in in his most recent uh, autumn statement he didn't seem to have any answers, though. It was a bit of a mystery to him. What do you think of the causes? Well, I think there's a few different things going on. And there isn't, in fairness, there is not one silver bullet. So I can understand why Jeremy Hunt, when he stands up, says he hasn't got a simple answer. But I think there are things that the government could be doing now 
to support the older workers return to work rather than wait for a review. So there's a few things going on. So first of all, we know, for example, that a big driver out of work is sickness. Increasing numbers of people simply cannot go back to work because they may be on a NHS waiting list waiting for hip replacement or a hernia or a shoulder operation. And, and the pain of waiting has, has forced them out of the workplace. Remember, if you've got 400,000 people waiting beyond a year for treatment. They can't go to work. No, that, I mean, that's, that's Wembley Stadium filled four and a half times, roughly. <laughs> Those people can't go to work. So you've got to fix your NHS and you've got to get on with the elective surgery in the NHS, which is why my colleague was Streeton and says we've got to recruit more staff and he's going to reform the system to treat people. So would you prioritise then those who want to go back to work and can't? Well, I think what you've got to do is do the sort of thing is which, which the last Labour government did, that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown did in the 2000s, is have a big focus on elective surgery, maybe use some specialist centres to get elective surgery done, because we know a big chunk of the people who are waiting for hip replacements and other muscular skeletal procedures or uh, orthopaedic procedures are out of work. But we also know that it's also not just about hips and knees and backs that are hurting and necks that are hurting. Some of this is also to do with ongoing mental health problems and stress. And if you better join up employment support services and mental health services, you can help more people into work. And this comes to my other point. At the moment, you'll have heard of the Job Centre and employment support. And the government's got lots of schemes, kickstart, restart. They announce them at different times. Yet only one in ten of unemployed older workers or disabled workers are getting any help from these schemes. So you've got to reorientate some of these schemes or you've got to build schemes for older people to give them the support as well to move into work. Because at the moment, the job centre just simply focuses on the short-term unemployed, those on universal credit. It's not the right levels of support for older workers. And, what's, and what is also part of that is skills. People need to reskill. We're all going to be living longer. This is not just an issue for the over 50s now in this crisis. It's, going to, it's an issue for the long term. We're all living longer. A child born today has a 50% chance of living to 100. One in four young girls today yeah. will live to how, 100. How about something which we, our might, might relate to more is like tax breaks well, for older workers for saying, you know, we'll get you back in and you can pay the base rate or, or just want to incentivise through the tax, well, tax well, system. Well, 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 it's not for me to make take tax policy on your podcast. Well, I think, just let me finish the skills point and I'll come on to tax. There is an interesting point about tax, but on the, on the skills point, if you are a graduate entering an apprenticeship, you can go in an apprenticeship for free. If you're in your 50s and want to retrain at level three, you'd have to take out a loan to do that. So I want to look at how we reform the system to allow more people in their 50s to retrain. But the problem at the moment is many in their 50s are reluctant to retrain because they think there's a risk involved. They might have to, they've still got a mortgage to pay. They've got family commitments. How on earth? They've, they've got to be reassured that retraining is economically worth their while. So I'm looking at how we reform our employment support yeah. system to give the Make it less ageist. Yeah, and that's the other thing. We've got to tackle ageism. Ageism is one of the great last taboos in society, if you like. I mean, we know that workforces still have a level of uh, uh, prejudice, uh, if you like, in the way in which they um, recruit. You know, they, there's always evidence from academics which shows, where, you know, you, you send in the CV with the age on or the date of birth on, they don't get an interview. You send in the CV without the date of birth on, they do get an interview. There's always studies like that coming out from academics. So I think we have to tackle ageism and flexible work. Many of the over 50s who are leaving the workplace are probably helping their own children with the, caring for their grandchildren. But they're probably also now caring for a partner who maybe has had a stroke or even a mother or a dad who's living with Alzheimer's. So 
But they would go back to work if there was a flexible option. And I'm not just dodging your question. On your final point about tax, remember, there is a tax incentive for firms to take on the over 65s because they don't pay national insurance. So at the moment, this is one of the things that, um, you know, firms like, I mean, B&Q have done some of this. You know, that, they were one of the firms early on, weren't they, to sort of make, a, make it a virtue that they were employing an older workforce. It's worth reminding employers that there is a tax incentive for them to take on older workers because they don't pay national Over insurance. 50s, I'm thinking about, aren't, aren't we? That's the, the group we're talking about today. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. Well, I mean, Will you, will you bring it down? Will you bring, uh, <laughs> if you're a Rachel Reeves? I'm not going to give you a scoop of uh, <laughs> Labour announces new tax policies on your, <laughs> on, your uh, 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 on your podcast. But it is interesting, though. I mean, things like Kickstart, which was a scheme Rishi Sunak introduced, which didn't actually get as many young people into work as it was expecting. They actually did a sort of wage subsidy scheme and there's a scheme called Restart, which is supposed to be for older workers. It's underspent by a billion pounds, roughly. If that money was reallocated to this cohort of people, you could give extra employment support and help with skills and training and work coaching to the over 50s. But at the moment, the DWP have just underspent on that money and presumably will just hand it back to Jeremy Hunt. When that's money that they could be spending now, it's in their budget line now, they could reallocate that now. How is the mood in the Labour Party at the moment? Are you, are you preparing for government? The mood in the Labour Party, um, we are not remotely complacent at all. I don't believe those opinion polls. It's certainly true the, the that... The Tories tell me it's a soft lead. That's um, what they tell, they um, tell me. Um, the 20-point lead. I don't believe those opinion polls at all. It's certainly true I think the country has had enough of the Conservatives. I think it's certainly true that there's a sense in which nothing works. I mean, you know, you can't get a passport on time. Yeah, you yeah. Your, your, your son can't get his driving test My on train time. this morning. Your train this morning. Um, you've had 12 years of the Conservatives and everything is just grinding to a halt. Everything costs more. Your mortgages are going up. Your heating bills are through the roof. People are terrified about what's going to happen in January when we've been through this Christmas period. I think people have definitely had enough of the Conservatives. There's no question about that. But the Labour Party, we know we've got a long way to go to form a government, to win the trust of the British people, and we are completely ruthlessly focused on winning the trust of the British people. It's not enough just to be competent. I think what Labour's can show to the public that a degree of competency, uh, Keir Starmer, he's trusted, he's, he passes that blink test, blink, and you can imagine him at number 10 Downing Street. But as Rishi Sunak brings back competency to the government, which some would say he is doing at the moment, there needs to be a new offer, maybe from your party. Um, I wouldn't fall for Rishi Sunak's spin. Okay. I mean, how can this guy present himself as competent when he burnt billions of pounds of taxpayers' money, threw it down the drain? It was a crisis, uh, the COVID not, crisis. Uh, well, not just for uh, the, the PPE contracts. I mean, I remember business people telling me that the way in which he was handing out money to spot businesses could be was open to abuse and exploitation. That's why one of his own ministers resigned at the dispatch box. Lord, Lord Agnew from Yeah, and what a dramatic moment that is. He's wasted, you know, he's, he's, he's wasted money all over the shop. So the idea that he is competent, I think, I think in terms of in benefit fraud in the, in the DDUP, <laughs> benefit fraud in the DDUP, under, on his watch as Chancellor, he was losing a million pounds an hour, I think. So I don't think he is competent at all. But clearly, after the uh, catastrophe of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, which led to that, run on pension funds, spikes in borrowing costs, people's mortgages going up and mortgage, torch their reputation for competence. Uh, you know, mortgages ricocheting around the, uh, uh, the money market. I, I can understand why people think he's different to Liz Truss, but in the end, in the end, people will look at what they've got for 12 years of Conservative government and they've got... You know, they failed to make our economy more productive. That's why we've got low growth. That's why wages are worth so much less than they were 
in 2010 and it's because he's failed to take long-term decisions we've got this energy crisis because he failed to take long the government the Tories failed over to take long-term storing energy and, yeah, and, so like, uh, you know we've got this part of the problem why we can't get many over 50s back into work because they need to retrain we're actually spending a billion pounds less on training than we were in 2010 so they've made rash decisions which has led to the economic collapse and mess that we are in today you're seen as one of the one of the the, the truth tellers in the Labour Party when you when you were recorded by a friend <laughs> pre-2019 election saying that the unpopular majority of Jeremy Corbyn would cost the election and it did the unpopular of Jeremy Corbyn would cost the election I'm sure I had to be Mystic Meg for that one to be honest and, but, anyway. and it did, but, but, but in, in a sense um, do you think that the, the party's flirtation with Corbynism has now gone I mean are you now credible do you think for a kind of telegraph readership as, as Labour were in 97 I think we're credible for the for the British people and I don't divide it up into telegraph no, readers well, I'm sorry thinking of my our, our own readers you know you're yeah. thinking of your own readers but your readers want a government that's going to grow our economy make our economy more prosperous going to get Britain back to work and is going to emphasise the importance of work work is so important to me I'm from a working class background my dad worked in a croupier and, he, and would finish at 4am and walk two miles because there was no transport my mum he met my mum because she was a bunny girl in the Playboy Casino of Manchester. That's where they met. But wow. But, but, after, but the point is, I'm not sure how that will go down with Telegraph readers. I don't know, to be frank. Uh, you tell me. But the point is, my mum, she worked in bars as a barmaid. She worked in two or three jobs at a time. You know, work is so important, not just to lift the aspirations of a working class child like myself, but it's so important for our economy as well. So I want to get Britain back to work. I think that's something Telegraph readers uh, uh, should support because in the end telegraph readers like the readers of the, uh, the perhaps yes. the more traditional labor supporting newspapers are really struggling and are getting really hammered under this conservative government from the tax rises the rising bills and the mortgage rate rises before we wind up jonathan i got to ask you about how your comedy career is going <laughs> how, how, how is my well, comedy you were a, you did a, a spell didn't you as a stand-up i did a, i did a bit of stand-up comedy um, great success i hear um i enjoyed it actually i i, I um you got a joke now for christmas oh time? my gosh have i got a joke right you've put you've, oh, i think my jokes are too blue for the t- <laughs> that's all right <laughs> for the, the pub for, uh, <laughs> only louise is listening uh, no they're far too blue maybe i'll tell you offline <laughs> <laughs> jonathan ashworth happy christmas great to have you on and good luck with your plans thank you Jonathan Ashworth, thank you. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. Thank you to my guests again this week, Sir Robert Buckland, Jonathan Gullis and Jonathan Ashworth. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. For more Westminster Insights, do check out my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. The link for that will be in the show notes this episode. It's free to sign up. Please do so. Also there you'll find the link to my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out every Friday evening at 7pm online and on Saturday's copy of The Daily Telegraph. And remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. It's a great way to find out the news and you won't regret it. So until next time, and with an extra festive treat for you just after this, it's cheerio from me. So Robert Buckland, uh, we are here, we're surrounded by... Um, Christmas decorations. It is Christmas. You are in a parliamentary choir. You are Welsh. 
Can you sing us a carol, or even the first oh. verse of a favourite carol? All right, then. Well, a little bird tells me, or a little robin, to be festive. Chris tells me that you like O Holy Night. I love O Holy Night. Which is loved, and it's actually a song that I, a uh, hymn that I have sung in my constituency at charity events. So have you? I'll give it a go. Okay, it was a nation's favourite carol a few years ago. I'm a bit rusty, but let's get, I'll do the first verse. Robert okay. Buckland, take it away. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O night divine, O night divine. Oh, well done. Brilliant. Woo-hoo!